an ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Brian Peck here with a bonus episode of the podcast. Max Tang and I recently hosted a webinar where we explored how curiosity can help you thrive after religion. I'm excited to share that conversation with you today. Several years after leaving the church I grew up in, I discovered that while the content of my beliefs had changed, I was still viewing the world through old ways of thinking. This realization began my personal and professional quest to find effective antidotes to fundamentalism. Over the years, I've discovered evidence-based clinical practices, I've conducted my own personal experiments, and I've learned a lot from the collective wisdom of others who have effectively undermined the influence of fundamentalism in their own lives. Max Tang has been on a similar journey and is exploring the many ways curiosity can help us thrive after religion through her speaking and writing. You can find out more about her work at maxgetscurious.com. In the podcast, we referenced the work of Todd Kashtin's research lab, but didn't have time to fully explore the five dimensions of curiosity, so I just wanted to note those here. Number one is joyous exploration. This is the prototype of curiosity, the recognition and desire to seek out new knowledge and information, and the subsequent joy of learning and growing. Number two is deprivation sensitivity. This dimension has a distinct emotional tone with anxiety and tension being more prominent than joy. This is about pondering abstract or complex ideas, trying to solve problems, and seeking to reduce gaps in knowledge. Number three is stress tolerance. This dimension is about the willingness to embrace the doubt, confusion, anxiety, and other forms of distress that arise from exploring new, unexpected, complex, mysterious, or obscure events. In my personal experience, this particular component of stress tolerance is so essential to the deconversion process. It allows us to be with our own uncomfortable thoughts, feelings, and sensations while moving forward towards the things in our life that bring us meaning and joy. Number four is social curiosity, wanting to know what other people are thinking and doing by observing, talking, or listening in to conversations. And then number five is thrill-seeking, the willingness to take physical, social, and financial risk to acquire varied, complex, and intense experiences. If you didn't catch all that, no worries. I'll post links in the show notes so you can learn more about these five dimensions of curiosity and discover what type of curious person you are. Todd Cashin's lab has identified these four different types of curious people. There's the fascinated, the problem solver, 
the empathizer, and the avoider. One of the fascinating findings in the research is how we can be more intentional and expand our perspectives through social curiosity. Being part of a community that values curiosity and openness can increase your own curiosity in ways you couldn't have achieved on your own. The value of social curiosity is not a new idea, but now science is making a stronger case for the types of communities we are creating at Life After God. If you would like to cultivate your your own curiosity with others in a community that values the open and honest exploration of ideas, consider the value of joining the Life After God members group. I'll include details in the show notes. Now, without further ado, I'm excited to introduce you to Max Tang as we explore how curiosity can help you thrive after religion. So um, I am a writer and speaker, and my main message is um, basically the power of courageous curiosity. So um, I believe that there's a lot of hope and power that we can find um, in just a new perspective, whether that's um, getting to know ourselves better or um, kind of reinventing the way that we live or opening our minds to, um, uh, you know, kind of better understanding of other people and in our lives and better conversations and friendships. Um, Yeah, so my passion is really for people who um, feel like they, are experiencing suppression or, um, or trapped in echo chambers because that's where my mm-hmm. life experiences come from. Um, yeah. So I, I love connecting with people from, um, any of those backgrounds. So we're just seeking a new perspective. What was it about a uh, curiosity that helped you leave fundamentalism? Often we have this kind of view of curiosity as like, you know, it's, you know, wanting to explore the novel or, or trying mm-hmm. something new yeah. or, you know, curiosity killed the cat, like be careful, like asking yeah. too many questions <laughs> kind of approach to curiosity. And, and I know in your right. own life, you, you have a more nuanced view of curiosity and you've kind of explored curiosity at, at different levels. And so I'm, I'm curious right. um, as you maybe share your story yeah. what happens <laughs> when, when a fundamentalist gets curious, right? And yeah. and yeah, so maybe a great chance to kind of share a bit how that process worked for you. Sure. I grew up in a Chinese American um, Baptist church and we were um, a tight knit community. We were non-denominational. And um, so growing up, that community was my my family, my home, and really infused my life with all of the ways that I saw myself and saw the world. And so my life was kind of punctuated by a routine of different like church-based meetings and things like that just throughout my week. Like we would have Awana, which is approved workmen are not ashamed for those of you who have not heard of it. And it's basically Bible, Bible memorization on Friday nights. Yeah. For kids Um, plus games and snacks and singing and all that. So that was on my Friday nights. And then on Tuesday nights, we had prayer meeting on Sunday, we had service. And then after service, we would go to each other's houses um, and different people would volunteer every week and we would just hang out. And then we would have summer retreats and winter retreats. And Mm. so truly this was my family and we called our friend's parents, aunt and uncle and all that. And that's, that's, just as much Chinese American as it is um, kind of a born again way of seeing the world, Mm -hmm, I think. Um, But it just goes to show how, like I said, infused my life was with this 
this religion. So this group gave me a lot of a, a really great sense of belonging and uh, security about how I saw the world. And um, growing up for me, that was really great. But there were also some extreme beliefs that mm-hmm. I grew up with that led into black and white thinking because actually they were based on black and white thinking. Yeah, um, for example, um, I grew up in a church that embraced the purity culture movement. There's actually mm-hmm. uh, a piece. I wonder if anyone uh, has seen it, but there's a piece in the cosmopolitan that just came out one or two days ago about um, the scam of the purity movement. Just that's the title. If you mm-hmm. want to look it up, it's really kind of this whole culture of uh, black and white thinking about, how women need to cover themselves up and not cause men to stumble. And if they do, it's their fault and mm-hmm. et cetera. And so like I would, I went to countless purity demonstrations with different metaphors for sexual purity, like needles and water balloons or mm-hmm. um, lollipops, et cetera. So that's one example of the black and white thinking that I grew up with or, you know, Harry Potter, we couldn't read Harry Potter because it was witchcraft. And um, I didn't listen to any, uh, yeah, any secular music growing up. So I actually did not know who Beyonce was (laughs) until college. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And um, the whole thinking behind that was that secular music was, you know, it was like devoid of any real Mm. meaning and there wasn't a point listening to it. And um, I was trained in the way of the master, which is kind of this um, street preaching uh, mm, training yeah. program mm-hmm. developed by Kirk Cameron and Ray Comfort, if you've ever heard of them. Sure. Um, but in our training book, we literally had caricatures, like literal cartoons of the kinds of people that we might run into. So it was like atheists. And then like all the names were puns also. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't remember what they were, but it was like atheists and then liberals and then liberal was signified by the fact that they were vegan and <laughs> um, so etc. And so, yeah, that's, I say all that um, just as examples of the kind of black and white thinking that was the the calling hard, I think, of yeah. the religion that I was raised in, that perspective. So, so when, did, when did curiosity yeah. kind of show up for you? And, and I'm just curious how that how that started and like what form that took and, mm-hmm. and then how you kind of really took a hold of that as, as a way of, of being in the world and, and a way of seeing the world. Yeah. That's a good question. I, so all of that I just shared is a good setup of kind of how I operate in, in the world as someone who was growing up with all of these beliefs, you know, um, like when little kids are told that Santa exists, they, they believe it, you know, because the adults around them are saying that there is this man who will bring you toys on this day if you're good. And here I'm comparing that to kind of the, the very black and white the, the simplicity with, with mm-hmm. which I saw the world, you know, yeah. this is, this is a sentence, uh, therefore it is true. And yes. um, yeah. And so I went through the world with a lot of fear and a lot of judgment and looking back, it's really cringeworthy, yeah. um, honestly, but uh, I would have Jewish friends and I would think, Oh, like you, you were the ones that got Jesus killed and just mm-hmm. this, Less, like associating them with the Israelites in the Bible and, and com- uh, really like conflating the two groups as if mm-hmm. they were the people that I was reading about in this yeah. book, um, which is pretty unbelievable now if you think about how sure. different, yeah. you know, how much time has passed since the writing of the Bible. 
also just uh, anxiety whenever I heard secular music about all of the things we were told were bad and um, feeling distant from my own body and especially, most of all, from my own self, feeling mm-hmm. that I didn't belong to myself. Right. And I actually didn't even, I didn't feel that I knew who I was because um, that identity being Christian was what always came first. Yeah, this was the worldview that I grew up in. And it was also the worldview that I was intent on spending the rest of my life in. So I wanted to become yeah. a missionary. I wanted to go to a Bible institute and learn to be a minister or a missionary of some kind. But curiosity came in and had different ideas for me. Um, and that's something that I love about curiosity. It's just such a, a human trait, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was something that was kind of disabled or discouraged in me because I grew up in a world where basically uh, information was never discovered by you. It was dictated to you. So I wasn't, I didn't really know how to go out and like search out new perspectives and consider that they might be true. But I did have a lot of people and things come into my life that challenged my own perspectives. Um, and this is, it wasn't in a confrontational way, like, hey, you're wrong about everything that you believe. Um, <laughs> it was more like, hey, you just tried to convert me and let me talk to you about what I actually believe yeah. and ask you a few questions. Or online, I would run into information about sexuality, or I'd be reading something about uh, how like virginity was a questionable idea and start to think, why does this make so much sense? Um, And so really for me, it was like, that was the beginning of emerging curiosity for me. Yeah. What you're describing up until this point feels very familiar, you know, for a lot of us who have gone through this process, you know, where there's, there starts to become cracks in what we believed and we, are exposed to new information and, yeah. and we, become, we become really curious about it. We want to explore that more. I, I think the next step though, of, of how you continue to move through that and, and continue to be open to that, you know, I think curiosity, there's, there's kind of two parts to it sometimes or there's more than two parts, but you know, there's this, like, I'm, I'm curious and, and I want to explore and, and learn new things, but then there's this, willingness to be with discomfort, willingness to be with uncertainty. (laughs) And so I think so many of us will come up against, you know, a new idea or a new concept and we want to explore that. But then just the the fear of rejection, the discomfort around like this is going up in my worldview. And so I need Mm -hmm. to kind of retreat back into my familiar, you know, maybe biblical literalist kind of view of the world. And what you're describing feels familiar. And, and yet yeah. I also think, um, you know, that that next level of where do we go from here with, with our right. curiosity, how, how can curiosity help lead us through this process into a place that feels more kind yeah. of connected in, to our own, you know, humanity. Yeah. Well, I can talk about a few of the ways I started actually getting curious um, yeah, sure. after I was kind of met with all of these contradictions in my life. And I, I do see Ryan said, um, your experience mirrors so many that I hear from time to time. I never get used to it. It always hits me like a ton of bricks that this worldview you and I were raised in is abusive. And wow, that, that actually means a lot for you to say that because same here. Um, <laughs> you said it for me. 
I so before I had my blog Max Gets Curious, I had Max Goes Godless. I'll I'll get a little more to where that came from in a bit, but basically it was about my journey of trying to leave a lot of my or trying to reconsider and honestly heal from a lot of mm-hmm. the negative beliefs um, that I was raised with. And a lot of people would find my blog and say, hey, like I experienced this too. And it's been really, really difficult for me. And that has been one of the most rewarding parts of uh, kind of sharing my story. I I live near Salem, kind of near Salem, Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. which is our like residential witchy town. And I was afraid to literally step over the threshold of a store because I read a comic book growing up and also a lot of Jack Chick tracks because we would go out, (laughs) we would go out and evangelize in like malls and beaches. And I'm so sorry to anyone who like had to experience that. Yeah. Yeah. But I read a lot of like, yeah, that comic book, for example, um, a lot of things that, were really negative about uh, witchcraft to the point where like this comic book was about a a group of boys who went to a palm reader just because they thought it was fun. And um, one of their Christian uh, adults in their life said, oh, you shouldn't do that because that's, you shouldn't mess with it, you know, because it's real. And they went and they got like possessed by a demon. And so I read that comic book and I was afraid to, I like as a person was physically afraid to step over the threshold of um, a, like a shop in Salem mm-hmm. that sold pagan trinkets and materials yeah, sure. and everything like, yeah. And so you're right. It's, it's really amazing in a negative way, the power that black and white thinking can have over us. Um, But back to curiosity, (laughs) curiosity was really a really powerful tool for me to kind of step past that black and white thinking. And once I kind of started seeing the cracks in the foundation, so to speak, that actually took me probably around two years to even consciously admit to myself, like in Mm -hmm. my thoughts, because I was afraid that something bad would happen if I did, like, but no lightning struck or anything like Mm -hmm. that. So I was in high school at the time. And um, I was starting to realize that I was not straight. And I was starting to question everything that I had always believed was true. I found a lot of comfort Mm in. And so that was honestly a very traumatic time for me, that time period of, of just years in high school. And I had to stay in the closet because I knew that my parents would not be uh, understanding as Chinese mm-hmm. Americans, as immigrants, one, of, one is an immigrant, as evangelicals and so I really like hid my thoughts and my doubts and my um and my truth but curiosity was something that really allowed me to kind of say like you know I have these questions and now let me go out and find some answers so something that was really really powerful for me was just meeting people who had different lifestyles and different life life experiences Mm -hmm. and perspectives in me. So for example, in high school, one of my Jewish friends said that uh, her rabbi told her that um, if Judaism had any symbol, it should be a question mark. And I was like, whoa, like (laughs) that that sounds so beautiful to me. And I know that Judaism is a wide spectrum of beliefs and experiences, and that might not be everyone's experience for sure. Mm -hmm. But um, in her in her group, like it was about asking questions and it was about having your own interpretation of um, the text. And in that moment, I realized like, Oh my gosh, like 
my the symbol of my religion is period like it's mm-hmm. right. it's not a question mark yeah um yeah and an exclamation point at times you know this is yeah. I'm 100% <laughs> sure about about this there's, there's yeah. no doubt at all yeah it, what, what a welcome relief from yeah. this kind of fundamentalist way of, of being in the world to, yeah. to, to realize that you can also be human and not know things or not pretend to know things with absolute certainty yeah that's amazing yeah and I had a I had a trans friend, and I don't know if he'll ever listen to this podcast. We're not really in touch anymore. But the first half of my high school years, I was still evangelical, and I was really homo- uh, homophobic and transphobic. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I will always wish could have been different. But I would like say really mean things about him at the lunch table and to me this was completely normal because it made sense to me this is wrong therefore i can badmouth it but other people at the table were really uncomfortable and i didn't notice that for a while until kind of later on but they never really said anything about it and um, i remember this turning point for me when i was learning more about sexuality because I was I was becoming more curious about sexuality and what I had been taught because of these of this person in my life and a couple of other people in my life. And I was I did a lot of my searching on the Internet and um, I learned a lot about a different way of seeing sexuality, which is kind of the modern understanding of sexuality mm-hmm. that it's a spectrum and that it's fluid and that it's okay not to be straight there's nothing wrong about it um no one will punish you for it and um uh consent is important and all of that stuff and i remember at my youth group asking the youth pastor or the lead leader like is it really wrong for people to be trans and that was when i really started grappling with that question and yeah. um curiosity really takes a lot of courage sometimes and that's why I I say courageous curiosity because uh, courageous curiosity is about kind of discovering new stories so you can let the old ones go and that's not always a simple task especially when you're trying to leave religion you have all this anxiety and nostalgia and fear and social relationships and belonging and sacrifices attached to uh, believing that these things are true yeah. You know, inside of religion, fundamentalism, there's this kind of concept of um, cognitive fusion where you become so attached to a belief or a thought that there's no kind of a way of distinguishing between your, yourself and and the thought or the belief that you have. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, I think that that way of being in the world, that way of being human, where your whole sense of self, your whole identity is is kind of so welded or attached to a particular belief or idea that that you don't exist independent of that and and i think curiosity invites us to to step back a bit and to notice like oh i'm a human <laughs> and humans yeah. <laughs> the world in different ways and they yeah. can have and humans can have thoughts and they can have emotions and sensations and and we don't have to become super attached to those in order to navigate the world in fact the more attached we are to a thought or a belief or, you know, a sensation, the more uh, potential we have to suffer. I think suffering often is about that kind of pushing away a thought or trying to get rid of that or holding it tightly. And, um, and in some ways that was my experience inside of fundamentalism is, is, is similar to yours in that mm-hmm. those beliefs were so important. I was just yeah. had this death grip on them. Like I have to hold on to yeah. this thing. It's so important. And then you lose, you know, kind of lose a sense of, of who you are as a human. Mm-hmm. 
I, I think on the other side of leaving religion, though, there's almost this kind of pushing away those old thoughts. And, and, and it seems like you and I both have come to a point where, where we realize that kind of rejecting or pushing away is also another form of, of suffering, right? Where, where yeah. we're still kind of connected to those old ideas, those old thoughts. And, and I think that's um, one of the reasons curiosity is so important um, to help you move through a, a faith transition or a deconversion is because if you can cultivate this sense of openness to your experience and openness to new ideas, then you're less likely to get kind of caught up in a struggle against what you've left. I see so many individuals who have gone through uh, a deconversion get kind of stuck there in that place of like religion sucked. It was bad for me. It hurt me. And all that is true. And yet when we're pushing against it and trying not to experience that, I think that's where um, we, we, we end up just kind of getting stuck there um, mm-hmm. somewhat unintentionally, but it certainly does happen. Yeah. Yeah. Peach says, I admire you for having the courage to embrace the curiosity. I know my nature is very curious, but I feel that for a large part of my life, it has been stifled by fear and trauma due to the religious messages that took foothold in my brain, even when I was no longer Christian. Yeah. You know, a concept that I think is useful for us to um, touch on a little bit is that, you know, our brains don't have an eraser. There's no delete button. There's no backspace. And so we're left with adding information. We're left with adding new experiences. That's another really amazing role of curiosity because it's it's this kind of forward movement, this openness, this connecting to new ideas as opposed to this idea that we can just replace an old belief with a new belief. I mean, I, that's just not how our brains work. That's just not how we yeah. evolved. And so we need to find new ways of, of, of being in the world while still experiencing those old um, thoughts, feelings, sensations that are part of our learning history. And in that the piece of curiosity that allows us to experience distress or discomfort and still persist in moving forward um, is such a vital part of of, of this of this process. Yeah. And like I said, that's I think that's why the courage part of curiosity is so important. I really relate to what you said, PJ, because um, I, aside from the religious part, I grew up with um, anxiety that was so severe that I couldn't speak or even like wave or not hello um, mm-hmm. in certain social situations because I was so afraid of being seen. And mm-hmm. I'm sure that the the religion, the black and white thinking that I saw the entire world with was a contributing factor. Um, but yeah, I was so, I felt so stifled. Like I, there were so many things arising in me that I wanted to say, and I wanted to have relationships with people and I wanted to be here and present. And I think that that is uh, just human nature. Like, I think that's a natural part of who I was. And it's so... <laughs> amazing and life-saving to be able to express that now but I yeah. also think that um just in parallel like curiosity is human nature it's a nature it's a natural part of all of us and when you especially when you grow up as a child in a community or teaching that is focused on very black and white thinking that curiosity it can feel like a threat because um mm-hmm. of all of these beliefs you know you've been told that if 
if you don't believe in these things, then um, these bad things will happen to you, or you'll be a bad person. Or if you go against these beliefs, and you do this thing that we've told you not to do, then bad things will happen. So yeah, yeah. it can absolutely be really scary and really anxiety inducing. And definitely want to acknowledge that just like you did brian just yeah that for stress sure. tolerance part of curiosity yeah no i think it's just so important and and it kind of goes against our our kind of natural instinct i think we humans evolve to move toward things that bring us pleasure and joy and move away from adversive or, or unpleasant things and so when we think about talking about kind of curiosity as therapy right so this idea that you know we move towards pleasant things and move away from adversive things it's kind of built into kind of how we move through the world, but then we bump up against a problem when moving towards something that we want and something that's important to us produces anxiety or distress or discomfort. Right. So mm -hmm. I want to explore the world and, and, and try new things. But then as soon as I start to do that, I have this fear of rejection, this fear of being misunderstood, being cast out of the group, like mm -hmm. all these kinds of internal doubts, yeah. fears show up. Yeah. And so, so then I'm forced with this, I'm, I'm faced with a dilemma, right? I move toward the thing that that's important to me, but then I'm moving toward the thing that's unpleasant. And so there's the, the psychological term for that is experiential avoidance, where we typically will instinctively move away from the most adversive thing, which is that fear or doubt that we're experiencing okay. internally. And when we do that, then we're also moving away from what's important to us. And, and for me, one of the most powerful pieces of curiosity is the ability to sit with that internal discomfort while you're doing what's important and just such a powerful kind of um, it's like a superpower, right? To, to be able to be with your doubts and fears and, you know, internal unpleasant sensations while doing the important thing. Yeah. Curiosity allows us to be open to that. And, and, and when I say open to, you know, the unpleasant experiences. It's actually like being curious about them. Like, what is it? I'm feeling anxious right now. What does that feel like? Well, my hands are sweaty and my heart's beating fast and I'm noticing that I'm having that experience. I'm like, okay, it's okay that my body's feeling this way. I notice that my mind is telling me you're going to fail or people are going to like, you know, think poorly of you. I'm like, okay, my mind, <laughs> you know, has yeah. some interesting thoughts show up because of my learning history. And, and I can just allow myself to experience that in this very open and curious way, as opposed to turning away from that and trying to avoid that. And so, yeah, I think curiosity um, is, is so much part of, of, of the therapy work that I do um, in my clinical practice, as well right. as in my coaching, because I think without that willingness to be with our experience, we're, we're just going to be kind of stuck in the struggle, trying to not think certain thoughts, trying to not feel certain feelings. And whenever we get caught up in that struggle, there's just really no way of winning that. I mean, as someone yeah. who also experiences anxiety, uh, I'm sure you, you can relate that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, trying not to feel anxious is, is, is doomed to fail as a strategy, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. I, I just want to feel that way. Okay, well, good. But how does that work? You know, how can you not feel that way? Because you feel that way as opposed right. to being like, I, I think you and I were talking just briefly before we started the webinar that, um, you know, before, at least for me, before I do an event like this, um, there's some butterflies. I feel nervous. I think what's different now is I realize like this is important to me. And, and I'm now I'm willing to be with whatever that sensation is because yeah. it matters. It's connected to my values. It's connected to what, what, what I find meaningful in life. 
And, and so now I can be here with sensations that normally would be unpleasant and like something I would want to avoid. And now it's like, well, no, this is what it feels like to do something important. This is what it feels like to connect with things that I care about. And, and I think, um, yeah, curiosity is, um, allows a person to do that. Like, mm-hmm. why, why do I feel this way? Well, you know, it could just be that you're, you feel anxious and nervous and like, that's just what it is. But more, more likely than not, you, you care about something and, you know, cause right. we, we typically hurt where we care. And so yeah. to get Love curious that. about the underlying value, like, okay, like this matters to me. I care enough about this topic that I want to, you know, be in a situation where I could feel uncomfortable and right. um, I'm totally okay. And open to that, you know, that, that kind of openness to our experience. Um, yeah. Hearing what you were saying, Brian, uh, just reminded me again of what he just said about the fear part mm-hmm. of the religious messages that kind of stifle curiosity and the fear that can come up when we choose to become curious. Yeah, just tapping into the things that you are passionate about can be a really great way yeah. to kind of get get a new perspective and ha- have an experience that allows you to reconsider that black and white thinking. Because yeah. I'm just thinking of when when I was in the closet, I was in the closet for five years until uh, two years ago, almost two years ago now, actually. And I felt so much of, of fear and trauma because of my situation where I felt like I couldn't I couldn't be honest with anyone in the religious community that I grew up mm-hmm. in and especially not with my own family about uh, my sexuality or my doubts. And um I, during that time, could not stop myself from tracking down every story I could of anyone who'd ever left a religious background. And (laughs) it was just something that I couldn't stop myself from doing. And um, it turned out that that was really, really powerful for me to be able to kind of reach out beyond myself Mm -hmm. of the echo chamber of, of my brain that was saying, I don't know how to leave this this life that's the only life i know like i don't even know how to not be a christian um and i can't even imagine a life where i am out and safe and both of those things are true in the same sentence and so reading all of those stories was just it's being curious to hear about how other people had done it and where they were now that allowed me to to see that it was possible to do that it gave me hope it gave me the space to imagine for myself what that could look like. And that's actually the reason why I ended up coming out almost two years ago, because I, I realized that this was a life that I could have because of all of those stories that I had found, all of those people that I had met wow. and realizing that this was a bigger, bigger story or phenomenon than just my own life. So as you're, as you're sharing that, I was uh, re- reminded of one of the, the five dimensions of curiosity is this kind of social curiosity piece, like mm-hmm. being interested in other humans and their yeah. experience. And, and I think, you know, we humans are, are social creatures, right? And so we, we can't actually exist alone in isolation. Like it really messes with our brains. It messes with our, our just our health, right? We can't actually survive in isolation for very long. Right. I think the beauty of, of, of noticing other individuals who have had experiences similar to your own is that you can actually have a construct or a concept of what that would be like. It actually gives you another perspective. <laughs> another beautiful thing about curiosity is that now I can imagine a world in which I'm out and safe and, and okay, right? Whereas before, yeah. without the stories, without that kind of social curiosity and a connection to another person's perspective, 
um, it, it becomes very difficult um, or at least more challenging to, to have those experiences. So yeah, I'd certainly love that, that social curiosity piece as well. Yeah. Super important. Yeah. yeah so the purpose of our, our talk today and, um, and what we're sharing is really how can we use curiosity as, as a, an effective way to move through and beyond fundamentalism. And so I'm, I'm just really curious about um, maybe both of our experience with this and the people who are individuals who are listening in, yeah. like why, why, what about curiosity makes it such an effective antidote to fundamentalism? And I think as you were sharing your story, I was noting like, you know, the rigid thinking, you know, black and white thinking, this, um, you know, rule governed behavior, like following the rules, checking the boxes, like this is how one functions inside of fundamentalism, right? Like you have to follow the rules and it's literally true. Um, and, and then there's this, this kind of idea of absolute capital T truth and, mm-hmm. and how kind of limiting those experiences are. And then, you know, just how incurious you become and in some ways how arrogant you become because mm-hmm. you can't entertain the possibility of, of being uncertain about something. Yes. And, and then we, we started looking at like that kind of backdrop that you painted for us so well with your own personal experience and then start looking at like what curiosity is, is like and how that in some ways is a counterpoint to the experience of being a fundamentalist. And, and so I'm just curious, like what comes to mind when we say like, why is curiosity uh, so helpful I just, I love that the way you phrased it, just an antidote to fundamentalism. Yeah, sure. It's um, a bit of a poison, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> right. um, just what comes to mind is the the idea that for for me, and I think for anyone who grew up in a fundamentalist or conservative, conservative religious environment, mm-hmm. is that um, information is dictated to you. It's never discovered by right. you. You know, you have this text and people are are telling you that this is ultimately true. And, um, you know, if you have any questions, then you'll get answers like, oh, God's ways are greater than our mm-hmm. ways, or you can ask right. him when you're in heaven, or, yeah. <laughs> you know, God, God knows better than us, or things like that, or, or even that you can't question him, because mm-hmm. he, he's God, and you're you, and who are you to ask questions of him, like in Job. Yeah. So I think that curiosity at, at its very core is a really healing practice for us. It's, it's a continuous joyful and courageous practice of discovering new stories so we can let go of the old ones that don't serve us. And um, I think of it really like a cloud, you know, like clouds are constantly changing shape. They're like picking up new droplets of water and letting go of um, old ones. And like, we are like clouds in that we, we can change uh, shape and form over time. We can grow and evolve and also we can let go of w- what feels heavy. We can, yeah. we can release what doesn't need to be here anymore. And we can kind of pick up new water droplets of ideas. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I love that idea of in, inside of the terms that I'm familiar with. It's, there's this kind of self as content, this like I am all the, the sum total of all my thoughts, feelings, beliefs, sensations, you know, the roles that I occupy in the world. And like, it's a very rigid way of seeing oneself. And then there's a self as process kind of concept. And, and what you're describing feels very much like, yeah, like I can add new information. I can change things. I can evolve yeah. and I can, it, things can shift and change over time. And in, in that that's possible when we're not forcing ourselves into kind of arbitrary boxes or categories that, right. that we're forced to do inside of fundamentalism. Yeah. yeah. I was also thinking too that it, I left a fundamentalist religious um, 
group when, that I grew up inside of. And, and then I also, I, um, I've shared a story before and I think you know what I'm about to say. You know, I was in graduate school and, and uh, my wife said to me, who had seen me kind of go through the last stages of my uh, deconversion. So I was kind of like my last gasp of fundamentalism. She kind of <laughs> witnessed that. And so she said to me, Brian, you know, you're, you're still a fundamentalist. You're just fundamentalist about different ideas now. And I was like, Oh my goodness. Like, this is, it was hard to hear. Like it hit me like a ton of bricks, right? Like, yeah. Whoa. Um, like, here I had left all these old ideas, ideas, these old beliefs, I discarded them, but I hadn't, I was still kind of functioning in the world in the same kind of way. The thought processes were the same. I still needed, I still needed the good guys and the bad guys. I needed to know who the enemy was. And, right. and, I, and there was this kind of very strong kind of connection to kind of black and white thinking as well. Like things need to be simple. My brain wanted certainty. And, and so I realized that it, it wasn't enough to just trade out beliefs for, mm-hmm. I mean, I think objectively better beliefs. I mean, I would like to say that I think beliefs that are probably better for the world. Right. Um, But if I'm still kind of stuck there in this um, very rigid way of being human, I I just, I I realized that wasn't actually healthy for me. And so I think that started my journey towards discovering new ways of being human. And, and that's where I discovered, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy or act the uh, particular therapy model that I, I work from. And that has a real focus on psychological flexibility and not getting caught up in rigid thinking and in some ways kind of sidestepping language a bit so that you can really just focus on, you know, maybe your underlying values and things you care about as a human, as opposed to, you know, getting caught up in the stories. And and, and so as you're sharing your story, in some ways, I'm a bit jealous of, of how quickly you've moved through this process and came to a place of like, you know, Oh, I can be open and explore the world. And um, I'm, I'm just super excited. For you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think one of the most healing parts of learning to be curious and choosing to be curious in your everyday life is because you get to take back the power of yeah. what you what you believe and how you discover information about the world. Mm-hmm. You know, once you were told this is this and that's that. And yep. <laughs> and now, yeah. yeah, and now you have the power to go out and choose your own experiences and try out new activities and learn about different things. And also to be wrong, you know, like I, I saw that Chrissy commented, learning to get excited about the prospect of being wrong has been huge for my process. The ability to change your mind is so powerful. And I totally agree yeah. with you because mm. um, <laughs> learning to love uh, or be okay with being wrong has been so um, life-changing for me too, Chrissy, just because when I was a fundamentalist, being wrong was literally the end of the world because it was, that was life as I knew it. And I think that's why it's so hard for people to leave behind the thinking process of fundamentalism, just like you shared, Brian, like when you leave, and I think this happens to a lot of people, you leave Mm -hmm. a religion and then you're like, okay, I'm out in the world. Yeah. Time to just apply the same kind of thinking, but to a different like yes. group. And just like with an atheism, I think that mm-hmm. might be a particularly big problem. Yeah. And um, even outside of that, just um, in the age of Trump, we're seeing a lot of echo chambers and black mm-hmm. and white thinking in, in that yeah. vein. where People will cut each other off or they'll be talking without listening and things like yeah. that. But it's just, I think that, 
getting excited about being wrong is also really healing. And I think that's part of curiosity, you know, Um, you can be curious all you want, but if you are not willing to be wrong, that won't do anything for you. So just kind of learning to, to let go of those old ideas and be humble and know I can be wrong. And that's amazing. And the point of life is um, being able to evolve and to listen and to experience, not to, have a black and white real rule book and that's how life yeah. goes for the rest of forever you know that's yeah, awesome. yeah I, I remember watching a um a uh, a ted talk um years ago about uh, being wrong and what it feels like to be wrong and and i'll ask the question here um just to see what what people's response is it's a bit of a trick uh, a trick question just so you know so what does it feel like to be wrong and so the question is like, what sensations show up? What, what do you notice about being wrong? And I think what most people, what I thought initially when I heard the question was like, well, it feels terrible. It's embarrassing. It's, yeah. it's frustrating. I feel like I've been duped. It feels just very unpleasant. But the reality is it, it doesn't feel like that at all. What it feels like to be wrong, it feels exactly like being right. And so the question we're answering when we're answering with all this kind of discomfort that we're experiencing, that question is what it feels like to discover that you're wrong. I'm holding beliefs right now that are, are wrong. (laughs) I just haven't discovered it yet. And so it feels like I feel very, very confident. I feel right. I feel like, well, of course I I know this is true because it's true for me. And, And so then I just, I feel very certain about that inside of that experience. Now, as soon as I discover that I'm wrong, that's when I feel that discomfort and that embarrassment and and whatever that that feeling is. And so when I realize that I'm moving through the world in the way that makes the most sense for a brain to move through the world, where you just assume that you're right about everything, because otherwise you'll just be frozen in like, I can't actually decide or do anything because it's too scary, right? So so it's like, okay, it's very efficient for our brains to assume that you're right about things. And I think we get really attached to that sensation of like, just feeling like I'm right all the time, that we aren't willing to explore how we're wrong. And, and then we don't grow. We don't explore new things. We don't have new experiences because we're just comfortable feeling like we're right, you know, I think for us to um, be curious and to cultivate curiosity is, is to actively explore the ways that we're wrong, which feels yeah. very counterintuitive to like terrifying. how we normally would be. But yeah, it feels yeah. terrifying a bit. Yeah. But, but to recognize that, well, it's, it's a wonderful thing to be wrong. And, and I'm really glad, yeah. uh, you know, Chrissy, you mentioned that to, to really start to appreciate that. And, and to, you know, when someone says, Hey, you're wrong about this, be like, Hey, you know, thank you. I, I value being wrong because it's how I learn and grow. So what's your answer to the question? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, I think as far as, you know, why curiosity is, is, is such a great antidote to fundamentalism, you, you know, there are like a lot of, a lot of kind of answers to that question, lots of different factors, but just like we're, we're, what we've already talked about, this kind of willingness to be wrong, ability to be with uncertainty, exploring other people's perspectives, you know, all these kinds of processes that are connected to curiosity really undermine the, the amount of certainty and arrogance and that, that's required by fundamentalism. And so, I mean, as soon as you start introducing the possibility that you could be wrong and then being okay with that and realizing you can survive that, then all of a sudden cool. the world starts to open up to you in ways that yeah. it couldn't before. And, and then I, I think you learn that, you're okay. You that you can survive that, and mm. I, maybe that's why it's so difficult to move from a very um, black and white 
way of seeing the world to something that's more open and expansive is because it feels, you know, while it feels exciting, maybe it also feels a bit threatening and, and, yes. and, and unfamiliar. And so I think so many, so many times we have to experience something in order to really understand it. And mm-hmm. I, I think um, moving through this process where you, um, you know, really connect with curiosity and, and are willing to feel what you feel as you move forward. Um, I think it, it just allows you to do that in, in, a, in a healthier way, as opposed to I'm going to like logic and reason and like have yeah. the arguments <laughs> for like why this old beliefs for beliefs were wrong. It's like, okay, yeah. well, that's, that'll get you out of religion often. But I'm not sure that's a foundation for a a meaningful life. Getting rid of old, unhealthy ideas and rejecting old beliefs. I mean, that that that's probably helpful, but it's not the whole story. It's not the whole process. That's just maybe the beginning of a process. And so, yeah, I think curiosity offers us a lot of different avenues and different um, methods to um, undermine these old old ways of thinking, so that you can leave fundamentalism without getting stuck becoming another form of a fundamentalist like like i had the experience of doing so i I think yeah just all the different ways that curiosity undermines uh, fundamentalism yeah there's there's just a lot of different ways for sure yeah so we we talked a bit as we were preparing for this and we only have a a few minutes left here um, about some like actual strategies we can use for that people can take home with them and use in their lives to cultivate more curiosity. And so um, I I have a few in my back pocket here (laughs) and I know you have a few as well. So um, let's maybe just kind of briefly share just some really practical strategies that a person can do um, easily in their life tomorrow. There are three um, main areas of curiosity have really, really helped me since I kind of started moving towards a new life after fundamentalism. And um, that would be um, conversations and friendships. The second one would be um, just learning opportunities like reading a book or watching a podcast, watching a YouTube mm-hmm. video. And then the third one would be, oh my gosh, let me remember, new experiences. So I can just think like throughout my life, with the, the moments that really, really helped me kind of move beyond fundamentalism and into like my, my new life, my new like self-discovery were hard moments. Like um, mm-hmm. the first time I, t- I showed up to pole dancing class because I had been told so many things about um, how I was supposed to express my sexuality or have my body and things like that and showing up with my fear and anxiety and kind of just doing my first spin was in my second spin and my third spin were um really powerful teachers for me that i'm I'm Mm -hmm. you know when i stepped over the threshold of the shop in salem lightning did not strike me Mm -hmm. when i watched the first harry potter (laughs) movie i um (laughs) the heavens did not open up and so new experiences have been really really great teachers of um, who I am, because when you go out yeah. into the world, you also meet yourself. So that's the first one. The second one is just social curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, so conversations and friendships, just getting to know people who have different perspectives than you, um, even if their perspectives that you've been taught are wrong, kind of humanizing that is a really powerful tool, like my Jewish friend and my trans friend. And then of course, learning opportunities, just filling in the gaps of things you may not know and that, you, that you're learning, you can't wait to learn about evolution or sexuality and things like that so um i actually have a worksheet that it's kind of a it's a weekly guide for curiosity so um it'll take you through those three areas 
the new experiences, the friendships and conversations, and then the learning opportunities. And they'll ask you every week, what is one area you want to explore? What is one black and white thinking idea that you want to challenge? Mm -hmm. And that is something that I did, honestly. Um, it was a, a practice that I cultivated over time. And that was yeah. really helpful. I, I, lo I love the intentional the way that you that you do that. You know, it, it kind of spells it out. And so instead of just like, oh, I'll just kind of incorporate curiosity whenever I can. It's like, well, no, like I'm going to be intentional about this. I'm going to say this is yeah. something that I want to explore and see differently and, ex and examine from different perspectives and, and have new experiences around. I, I just I love that um, that approach to cultivating curiosity in this very intentional way. And what about you? Yeah, so I, I was going to um, offer up a a little exercise for people to try as a way of, of hopefully gaining some more insight into the experience of why we really jones for certainty so much and why it's so important for us to feel certain. And so this might seem a bit, a bit strange, a bit odd, but I, I think it's useful. So give it a try if you, if you um, would like to. So if you were to, the next time you are sitting down to eat some food um, or if you have a, a, a bit of candy or a snack or something next to you, if you were to just pick up a piece of food and bring it to your mouth, and right before you were to eat it, you just held it there. And you ask yourself this question, or you kind of contemplated this possibility, will I or will I not eat this piece of food? And everything about your brain is saying, well, of course you'll eat it because you're in the, in the act of eating. This is what your hand does when you eat food, right? And so I think that's, that's just a, a, a common kind of thought that shows up. And then you might also notice like, oh, but I could put it down and that would be a different kind of experience. And so what would it be like to put this food down? And if you can, for a, a few seconds or 30 seconds or however long you can, just kind of be in that knife edge between I will or will not eat this food. And what is it like to not know? To, to, be intentional, to be intentional about like, I don't know whether or not I'm going to consume this food or not. And, and you'll notice that your mind will have a lot of things to say about that. You know, and if you were to decide, I want to put it down, then you'll have like a, a really, a really great story about self-control or I'm choosing not to or, or, or whatever. Or if you were to eat it, you'd be like, you know, you'd have a story about that as well. And I think just sitting with uncertainty is, is one of the most difficult things that we humans do. And, and to be intentional about like practicing that ability to, to be with discomfort and to have that, that sensation of, I don't know whether I will or will not do this thing and, and see if you can just kind of be comfortable there for, for a bit. What I found um, by kind of practicing this skill is then in each moment of the day, you can kind of zero in and zoom in about like, what is it that I'm going to do and, and kind of notice the urge to do the thing. And if you can sit with a decision before you make it, just briefly, just kind of pause for a second or two and just notice what's there. Then you start to catch yourself in this kind of automatic response that this is just how I do it because this is what's expected. This is what, this is what comes next. And you're not really kind of aware or reflective on that process. And, and so, so that I would offer that as, as an experiment to try as a way to kind of understand how your brain works a bit more around its need for certainty. And yeah. And then of course, you know, being open and willing to try new things, just a sense of openness, I think a willingness to be with your experience. There's all, there's just a thousand ways to do that throughout your day-to-day -day life. 
So saying yes to is something that I mm-hmm. uh, actively practiced at one point. That was actually how I really recovered yeah. from my anxious mutism, where I would commit to saying yes to invitations to hang out with someone, mm-hmm. or I would say yes to, oh, I just walked by that that person I know, and instead of being afraid and not and avoiding talking to them, I'm going to stop and talk to them and see where it goes. Yeah. And it was really scary for me yeah. because my anxiety is so severe that it mm-hmm. that I couldn't. Yeah. In some points. Um, and it was really difficult, but just choosing to be curious about where that would lead me, mm-hmm. saying yes to the opportunities that came up in my life, put me in those experiences that were much more power- powerful teachers sure. than me logically thinking like, this anxiety is stupid yeah. and it's irrational. There's no reason it should be here. Yeah, sure. And uh, I would have those experiences and I would realize like, oh, like that actually went really well, or here's something that I could do better next time. Or I learned um, a good small talk trick from this person and I'm going to remember it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, saying um, that there's this kind of improv um, thing of yes anding life, you know, like when you're in improv, you, a person throws a prompt out or your partner, um, you know, takes a story some direction. And if you say no, well, then the scene is over. Like there's no place to go with a no. You're just like, you're stuck there. And I think what you're describing um, reminds me of that kind of yes anding life of saying yes. Yeah. And so then the and implies I can move this in a different direction or I can explore it in a different way as opposed to saying no. And then that's just the end of the conversation. So um, I, I don't want to keep us here too long. I know, um, People are, are still with us. If, if anyone has questions who um, is still here, feel free to drop them in the, in the chat. I'm, we're happy to you know, have a bit more of a conversation with you here um, if you'd like. So I'd love to hear what's yeah. on your guys' mind. I wanted to just scroll back here. And, and Chrissy um, responded to the comment that I made about where we hurt, we, we care. We care where we hurt. And um, I, I think that's so important when we think about living a curious and open life, we will feel uncomfortable. It will be unpleasant. It will um, be difficult. But when we connect that to what, what we, what we care about, what our values are, then, then that gives meaning and purpose to that. And so I think for anyone who's moving through a transition out of religion and there's this, there's not a clear sense of like what matters to me, like what my core values are, my own personal values are, that process is is going to be really, really difficult and challenging because we, we humans want there to be some purpose to it, right? And we get to decide what that purpose is. I mean, that's a beautiful thing of being human is that we create our own meaning. We're not, it doesn't have to come from an external source. And so finding a way of connecting to, tuning into and noticing, what are my values? What do I care about? What, what's important to me? And am I willing to feel discomfort in the service of doing what matters to me? That's a very different experience than here are the rules you need to follow and you need to make sure you check all the boxes. And if you don't, well, then there's some consequence for that. Um, so this, this way of, of really tuning into and noticing that when I am being rejected by another human because we don't share the same beliefs and I notice that it's painful, instead of just being like, ah, that, that's painful, it's wrong, they shouldn't be treating me that way. You can notice instead, like, why is that painful? And like, okay, so my, my value of, you know, my value of, of human connection, I really value human connection. And so this feels like an affront to my value of human connection, this rejection. And so if that's true, then we can always ask ourselves in that moment, you know, how can I connect to my value? And it might mean restoring that relationship if it's possible. It might mean saying I, there's nothing I can do in this relationship, but I can still move towards others, others who um, I can connect with and, and still serve that value of human connection. 
Um, Chrissy says, how do you manage the times when beliefs went from your upbringing come up out of nowhere? What do you do with the experience of realizing somewhere deep down you still held an uncomfortable belief? Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, for, for me, the particular therapy model that I work from is not focused on trying to change or get rid of or replace old beliefs because it, I mean, it's just based on kind of how our brains work. We, we don't have that eraser or that backspace or, or that delete. And so um, I'm, I'm familiar with this uh, thought of I'm going to hell, right? Or, or hell is a scary place. And, and so like that belief, I mean, it hasn't shown up for a long time now, but it would show up quite often after I, soon after I left religion. And if I were to say like, well, no, hell's not true. And here's the reasons why my brain would then respond with, oh, but it is true. And here's the reasons why it's true. Right. And I would get stuck in this struggle. And I think if we think about how the, the points at which we humans tend to suffer the most, it's when we are pushing against a thought we don't want to have or a belief we don't want to have, or when we're holding it tightly. And so in both cases, in both conditions, we're actually kind of actively engaged and like, you know, kind of attached to that experience. And so what I found has been most helpful is when a belief like that shows up, um, I, I start to relate to it in this more open and compassionate way. Like, oh, there's the hellfire belief. Cool. Like, welcome, you know, you know, welcome, <laughs> old friend. Here you are again. And, and, and not in this dismissive way of like my my thoughts don't matter, but in this very kind of realistic way of like, oh, of course, it's there. That's part of my learning history. It would be it would be kind of strange if it weren't there and if it didn't show up on occasion. And so um, there are some um, some skills you can can use around that where um, I think visualizing that thought or that belief as an orphan, um, which might sound strange at first, but bear with me. There's no other place for that belief to be except that particular unique belief that you have. It only exists in your mind because of your past experience and it has no place else to go. As much as we'd like to just just push it out of our brain, that's just not how brains work. There's no eraser. There's no push you out of my brain kind of experience. And so yeah. we have to be okay with it being there if we want to continue to move forward in the world in the way that we want. And so for me, if I think about this really hurtful or unhelpful or uncomfortable old religious belief that shows up on occasion, if I, if I am compassionate towards that belief, if I'm open to it, and I'll, I'll visualize like putting my arm around it or holding it gently and be like, okay, you know, here, you're here. And, and, and I get why you're here because you care about my safety. You're worried that I will go to this really scary, you know, hellfire kind of place. And, and I get it. Like you're kind of terrified about that because this is just an old belief and you felt a lot of fear when you first encountered that belief. So I'm going to be kind and patient with you. I'm not going to push you away because I know that's going to create a struggle and I'll get stuck there. But if I just say, Hey, you know what? Um, you're welcome to be here, stay as long as you want, but here's the deal. I'm still making choices about my life. You don't get to decide what I do or don't do. You're welcome to be here. And so I think being, being with a, a thought like that in a, in a very open and curious way, just allowing it to be there for me, I find that's way more effective than getting caught up in some kind of struggle because you can read a thousand books about why, why hell was just this made up thing and it never was in the Bible or whatever, right? You can come up with like a thousand reasons why, and that might buy you a little bit of comfort possibly, but like how much energy are you willing to exert trying to get rid of a thought? That's just, just a thought. It's just there. And, and so I think having relating to it in this kind of open way um, for me, I, I find that to be really, really effective. 
yeah, I'm on the same page. Um, so I, I actually have an example um, from a couple of weeks ago where um, I was at a party at my partner's apartment and I've been to parties at his apartment and just his apartment in general for just many times. And um, I had gotten over my fear of parties and secular music and alcohol and all of that a while ago. But um, when I was at this party, there was really loud music playing and um, I was wearing like this low cut top and like lipstick. And um, I just started to have all of these thoughts come up that like this just anxiety about like this loud secular music. And like, I'm, I, this is what I'm wearing. And like men, I don't know we're coming and I feel unsafe and I shouldn't be here and this is a secular party and um, this is wrong and what I'm doing is wrong and etc. And I was like, whoa, where is this coming from? Like, I haven't believed anything, these things in a long time, but it was overpowering. Mm -hmm. And my partner walked into his room and saw me on the bed with like tears streaming down my face and was like, are you okay? And I was like, this is going to sound this is probably going to be hard for you to relate to, but I feel really anxious that I'm like doing the wrong thing and that uh, I'm not, I'm just anxious. And I was really frustrated with myself mm -hmm. for all of that for coming up because it had been so long since I'd had any of those thoughts. Mm -hmm. And I consider myself recovered from a lot of that old fear and I felt silly and I felt annoyed with myself and I was afraid that I would just end up spending the party like in his room for a silly reason like that. And I had actually gone to a Zen Buddhism retreat that morning oh, right. and um, it was for a sociology of religion class. So um, it's, I just went to um, observe and mm -hmm. write something about it, but actually um, something I had picked up from what they talked about there came to mind when I was sitting in bed. And it's the idea that your conditioning, your react, your, yeah, your conditioning is responsible for your reactions. So the first thought that pops into your head, the anxiety that might come up, discomfort or judgment or anything like that is a result of conditioning from your past, what you were taught, what you went through. It's not necessarily who you are in that moment. Mm -hmm. So in any given moment, you have the choice to, to recognize your, re your, your reaction as conditioning, to welcome it or just say, I, I see that you're here, um, to be curious about where it comes from and then be compassionate towards yourself and then choose to act according to your own values in this present yeah. moment, not according to your past conditioning. Yeah. So that's, I tried, I was like, yeah. let me try to apply this now and you know one, one thing to see that and then another thing to do it and it was it was hard but what I did was basically I said okay I see that this is coming up from my past and um, instead of being judgmental to myself about it and putting all this pressure on myself which is just making me myself more mm -hmm. anxious okay. I need to have compassion for myself because this is kind of my inner child coming up and saying, I was taught all these things and I'm scared and I want you to, <laughs> I want you to see me in this moment because this has never been addressed. Mm. And so it's just going to keep coming up until I face it. Yeah. Um, and it, it makes so space for it in this welcoming way. Yeah. It's so, so important. Yeah. 
And then I was like, I wanted to be curious about where it was coming from. So when I kind of asked, like, what, why is this coming up now? I remembered when I was growing up, like, at one point, one of my family members hid all of my tank tops because um, they told me that it was that I shouldn't wear them around like men mm-hmm. and, and boys because I could cause them to stumble. And that came back to me in that moment. I was like, yeah. oh, my God, like, that makes so much sense. And so I, I had like so much more understanding and compassion for myself because I stepped back and stopped judging myself and searched out where I had come from. And so then I was able to ask myself, well, what do I do, want to do right now? And I wanted to go out and have a good time and enjoy myself yeah, sure. and party and et cetera. I didn't want this to hold me back from living my life now. So I asked myself how I could do that. And um, basically my partner said, um, you know, we'll just go out in five minutes, but do whatever you have to, to ground yourself and I'll be here. So I just took deep breaths and um, said affirmations to myself. And then in five minutes, he got up and he was like, okay, we're going to go out now. And then we did and everything was, was okay in yeah. the end. So yeah, I, I totally relate to what you shared, Brian. Yeah, I think that's sure. great answer. So um, Meg asked if um, like how, do you have any tips for relationships with people who are not curious and are still in that black and white thinking? And um, you know, I, that's a really great question for me. The, the answers would be, I would answer it this way we can't be personally responsible for another person and how they perceive the world and how they relate to the world. And so being with someone who's not curious and is stuck in black and white thinking um, can be really painful. It can be difficult to be around them. It can be difficult. It can like, you can feel like you're getting pulled into that and it can just be like challenging, right? Recognizing that it's not our responsibility to change them can make that a bit easier to just be like, okay, I don't have to like, be working so hard to change how they are. However, the, for me, the most effective thing you can do in a situation like that is to model curiosity. And, and so in, in what this looks like, especially with a, a maybe a, a believing family member or a friend, even though you know where they're coming from, you know their doctrine, you know their beliefs because you've lived them yourself, to actually be curious about their beliefs, to actually be curious about how they see the world and what, what, what is underlying those, um, you know, those beliefs and, you know, like what, what are their core values? And I think what, what can happen there, if you were to explore another person's beliefs, another person's way of seeing the world with, with a bit of curiosity, for me, what I've discovered is um, oftentimes we share similar fears, right? Like, I have this fear of being rejected or being wrong or, or some type of fear. And so, so I can relate to that and connect to that, or I really want what's best for people. I want people to be safe. Right. And so we're like, okay, I can relate to that. We have different ideas of what safety is. We have different ideas of what's right and what's okay for humans, but I can connect around those maybe common human experiences, those maybe more, you know, core values type of things. And so as much as possible modeling that curiosity it's no guarantee that it'll rub off on them or that they'll, you know, catch that, but they'll, at least they'll see like, Oh, you know, you're not just curious about your own stuff. You're also curious about me and how I see the world. And I think that invites them to kind of respond in turn. Not everyone will, but some people will. And I think that's, that's a way of, of, of kind of um, modeling that. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree again. Um <laughs> 
I remember when I was, uh, I don't know how old I was, maybe middle school, I tried to convert my one of my cousins. <laughs> and I left because um, of three of, yeah, of three siblings that my dad has. Uh, one, like one sibling in his family. Her, one, one sibling in her family are all atheists. The rest of the family is Christian. So I was trying to convert this like atheist cousin who um, had done way more homework than me and <laughs> understood his worldview better than I did because he had taken the time to understand why he believed what he believed. And I just believed what I believed because it was supposed to be true. Yeah. So when I tried to convert him, he had all these questions for me. And that was really difficult for me. But I mean, that and many other instances when people modeled what it could mm-hmm. be like to... Yeah greet other people's worldviews and and comments and who they were with openness and acceptance rather than my approach was really powerful for me. So yeah, that's something that I try to do now um, because my, my dad, um, when I came out, had a, had a very severe reaction. Mm -hmm. And so I actually ended up having to completely financially separate myself. Well, I I was financially separated, but um, (laughs) I basically created a new life um, after I came out and my relationship with my dad and my mom did not really exist for a year after I came out. But um, over the course of that year, I realized that they were so, ingrained in their way of thinking that me trying to confront what they believed and show them contradictions and ask questions was just not working. Like I would say, like, I know what they believe. Like I grew up memorizing that stuff on Friday nights because (laughs) um, that's what what we did. But, and so I also know all the contradictions and why I believe it's wrong. But when I brought that up with them, it was just meant with things like uh, God's ways are higher than our ways. And, Um, you know, this is what I believe is true. And how could you, how could you not believe this? And you've been deceived and stuff like that. And so I think that coming at people with who are are stuck in black and white thinking with, um, this is the logic of why this is wrong. It's not really, it's not going to be effective because like we've said, there are so many emotional reasons why people want to stay within this thinking because it's scary and threatening to step outside it. So what really helped me was instead, like you said, Brian, being curious about why this was important to them. So I asked my dad that question and I found out that um, for him, he wants to feel like there is that there's going to be punishment for bad people and that good people are going to get what they deserve. Mm. So this kind of uh, divine policeman, like yeah. he, he wants that. He just wants that assurance. Mm. And that's something that I can relate to. Sure. I yeah, just justice. Can, yeah. You know, accepting that that might not always happen in the, in the world, something that I have had to come to terms with, but it's very difficult. And I understand that. So that actually really helped me understand his position. And fast forward to now, he actually called me like maybe a couple months ago and apologized for everything that happened mm. and said that we can go backwards. We can only go forwards. And now our relationship is starting anew. Mm. And so it's wow, amazing that, to hear that. that yeah. I never believed that that would happen, but that aspect of, me choosing to be curious about why he believes what mm-hmm. he believes and not trying to change his mind was a really big part of us coming to understand each other, even though he was very much like, 
I believe that being gay is wrong. And like when I used to talk to him about it, he would be so angry mm. and uh, all of that stuff just um, it, it helps to humanize the other side and to model for them yeah. and to just ask questions yeah. rather than coming at them with statements. For sure. Yeah. Perfect. Well, you know, I know we're, we're past our time, what we thought we would spend here. So um, yeah, let's just uh, quickly, I just want to let you know kind of some of the things that I provide um, if you're interested in, in, in exploring curiosity a bit more and, and thriving after religion and, and also what, what Max is, is doing as well in that same kind of vein. So I started a, um, a coaching cohort. Um, it's my first time running it. Um, a few weeks ago, I started that. And I'm taking 10 people through a six-week process of really zeroing in on a particular challenge that they're facing in their post-religious life, providing individual coaching for each member of the cohort, as well as collective kind of work together and collective kind of um, coaching as well. And um, it's just been an amazing supportive group so far. It's very forward-focused. It's definitely not about getting stuck. It's about like being proactive and doing what you need to do to, to take the next step to move forward in your life after religion. And so um, just stay tuned for um, when that's offered again. If you're interested, feel free to reach out to me. I'd be more than happy to talk with you uh, more about that. And then also I do offer um, individual uh, coaching as well online. So if, if that sounds like it'd be useful to you, feel free to reach out. Um, I would love to hear from you. So um, I speak and write. I actually have two upcoming events. If you're in Boston and you want to connect, um, I'll be speaking at Brandeis, I think, um, early April or actually very late March. And I'll be speaking at MIT at the Secular Society mm. of MIT um, April 4th. And I'll be sharing my story of how I left fundamentalism and what curiosity has done for mm, me. So cool. um, and what curiosity can do for us now as humanists. So um, that's on the calendar. And then also, um, if you're on Instagram, I write every day pretty much on Instagram about um, a different question about how to uh, reconsider a, a perspective about sexuality or spirituality or just curiosity in general and my story and trying to connect with others. So um, you can follow me there on Facebook. And then of course I have a blog where I um, interview people about their stories of creating lives of their own at MexGetStories.com. And I write my own blog posts about um, different things related to courageous curiosity. Awesome. Yeah. That's been, it's been so exciting to, to do this together. I, I just really appreciate you taking the time Max to, uh, to share this with me and with our audience here. If you would like to learn more about Life After God, visit us on the web at lifeaftergod.org. I'm grateful for the Life After God community and the space Ryan has created to explore the post-religious experience. Become a member and join the conversation today. Thanks again for being here. I'm your guest host, Brian Peck, and this has been the Life After God podcast. Mm-hmm.